You're listening to All Things Video, a podcast dedicated to uncovering the past and charting the future of the online video ecosystem. This episode is brought to you by Epidemic Sound, the company reimagining music licensing for the digital age. Epidemic's library contains tens of thousands of tracks that you can license a la carte or on a subscription basis. Unlike other music licensing companies, Epidemic Sound owns its entire catalog and makes tracks available via one straightforward license to cover all your needs, worldwide and in perpetuity. No more headaches around usage reporting, performance royalties, or murky rights ownership. It's better for the artists and better for you, the creator. So whatever your music needs, Epidemic Sound has got you covered. You're listening to All Things Video, a podcast dedicated to uncovering the past and charting the future of the online video space. We're your hosts, Jackie Coppell and James Creech, and today we're joined by Sarah Penna, co-founder and chief creative officer at Big Frame and now head of Awestruck Network at Awesomeness TV. Sarah, welcome to the show. Thank you. So getting right into it, let's go back in time a little bit. You were involved in the early days of current TV. Many listeners will recognize that from the online industry lore, as it were. It's no longer in existence, but it was once, you know, a potential and developing powerhouse. For those less familiar, can you tell us more about Current TV and how you ended up there? Yeah, so Current was this sort of amazing moment in time. We like to brag that we launched before before YouTube. And, you know, it was this amazing community-focused TV network that was really the first sort of vision of what is happening now, which is all the convergence of media. And so the idea was users, you know, back when user generated content was still a buzzword that we used, although current being current had to make up its own. And we called it VC squared, viewer created content. We had this amazing global network of uh, documentary filmmakers who would upload doc- short documentaries to a website and we would watch every single one of them and buy specific ones for, you know, what was back then an amazing deal. It was like seven, sometimes $700, sometimes $7,000. And then we would air them on an actual TV network. And I started actually as a creator. So was making documentary films for them wound up getting hired and moved to San Francisco. And it was this like amazing experience. I felt like I had won the lottery for jobs. It was 2007. We were all like 20 something year olds. We would have these like crazy boat parties with Al Gore and like champagne and caviar. And we were just like partying and, you know, we were, but we really felt like we were changing the world. You know, and I know that's like very cliche and parodied on Silicon Valley and HBO and all these things, but we really did. And and the core mission, you know, and and Al Gore genuinely believes this was to democratize media. Mm -hmm. And I feel like in some small way, we were definitely part of sort of where we are today, you know, and it was early days and there were a lot of flaws, but it was an amazing education for me. I was 23 years old and, you know, given a very large responsibility to go and help them build this global network. So just a couple questions. First being what's Al Gore like? (laughs) (laughs) He's very much like what you see when he speaks or in his documentaries, except when he's partying. (laughs) Interesting. (laughs) So we had this aforementioned boat party and you know, everyone got pretty drunk and he was being very funny and doing karaoke and was like signing. He, we all got a signed copy of his book, which is right over there. Nice. And he was like throwing them at like, you know, chucking them out. Like he was a rock star and, 
It was, he's he's really amazing and a really inspiring person. So he's had an amazing career, mm-hmm. especially you know since the presidential run. It's been pretty remarkable yes. to see. But it's really nice to hear. I do like the image of like the political version of a rock star <laughs> is a guy who like tosses his books, right? Like that's what that's what a politician does to let loose. Is like you get a book and yes. you get a book as opposed to like Benjamins or now Tubman's. Yeah. Harriet yes. being not Harriet Tubman is going to be on the I know. So hip, awesome. Hip, hooray. Ladies, um, showing it up. I know. I love that. You know, it's funny because he is he is very much a politician. So everything sort of had this like spin to it. And I remember, well, there were just, there were so many like, funny things about current. Like we won an Emmy and everyone got to go into Joel Hyatt, who was the co-founder. We got to go into his office and hold the Emmy and like get our photo taken with the Emmy and so funny that's awesome yeah it was it was a really phenomenal company for all of its flaws and then you know unfortunately sold to Al Jazeera or fortunately for a lot of people because they made some money but and then Al Jazeera you know recently went under as well so you mentioned you started as a creator have you always been creative what kind of prompted your interest in in that career path I've sort of always taken as not a very straightforward path to get to where I am so I actually met a documentary filmmaker while I was studying abroad in India, and I happened to meet him at the end of my time in India. And I asked where him, in India were you? I was just outside of Nepal, so I was in Darjeeling. If you've seen like Darjeeling Limited, that's where I was, or if you know where the tea, like Darjeeling tea. I actually I spent a few months in Nepal, so oh, okay, I I understand the area. Okay, fantastic. So we were, yeah, right outside of Nepal. So I spoke fluent Nepalese. Wow. And sort of helped him translate for this documentary that he was making. And that's sort of what got me into it. And Are you still fluent in Nepalese? <laughs> Unfortunately not. I can say oh. a couple of phrases. That's um, cool that you got fluent. I mean, that's amazing. Yeah, like very, it wasn't just conversational. Yeah. It was, I was there for six months and oh. lived with a family who didn't speak any English. So oh. it was, I had. That'll do it. Yeah. And so I thought it, it was, it's funny because I thought I wanted to be an editor. Just, it was one of those things where I was like, that sounds like a thing I could be. Little did I know it requires a lot of patience, mm. um, which I'm not, <laughs> I'm not fluent in patience. <laughs> got, it, got it. Well, you know, everyone has their thing. Yes. <laughs> but I, you know, I liked telling the editor what to do. So I was like, this seems like a career path that I could do. Did, when did you leave Current? Was it, obviously it was still a company when you left, but what sort of, yeah. what time period in the, in, in the company were you, were you there? And then subsequently did you leave? So I left, I got laid off with 80 of my colleagues the two days after Obama got elected. Oh, wow. Yes. So 2008, so, some yeah. hope, some change. Some hope, some change. Some economic downturn. Right. That was like probably, it was like the worst day of my life. Like I couldn't really, I, I thought I was going to be there. Like I had a 401k at 23 and I was like, ah, I'm good. Like this is it for me. And it was pretty shocking and pretty jolting. And I was three weeks later, I was back in LA. Why'd you move back to LA? Well, there's not a lot of entertainment in the Bay Area. And I had just been laid off with 80 extremely talented media people. And I was like, I am not about to compete with this like cohort of mine who's way more qualified than I am and way more talented. So, and I also just, LA suits my lifestyle more than San Francisco. So I was like, I'm ready. And you started producing uh, weekly content for some popular YouTube channels, <laughs> yes. right? And this was one of, with one of the earliest YouTube sensations, Philip DeFranco. Yes. How did you two meet? Off the record? No, no. <laughs> it's just funny how 
it sounds unreal because I'm like, I met in India. Right. I was working at this new media content company and it was an unpleasant experience. So I was sort of, I was just using it because I, I knew I didn't want to stay there to meet people. And I, I wound up getting introduced to a young man by the name of Danny Zappin, who would later go on to found Maker Studios. He was like, we are filming this like weird zombie thing in North Hollywood. Like you want to come check it out. There's all these like YouTubers there. And I had just sort of been getting introduced to the YouTube world. And so I knew the names, but I never met them. And I was like, okay, like whatever, I'll go. I wound up staying there all day and they, I'm actually a zombie. I don't think it's still alive, but if you watch, if it is, and you can see the first video that was uploaded to the station, which is was Maker's first YouTube channel. And I, still, I think, holds the record for fastest growing YouTube channel of all time. Really? I think it does. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, because, I mean, this was, like, the first collab channel. So mm-hmm. I am in the first video <laughs> as a zombie who gets her head chopped off by Hi, I'm Ron. That this stage that, never uploaded. You can take that one to the grave. I will. <laughs> it's really? on my I think she already has. That's right. <laughs> yes, you just ride that one as long and far as it'll take you. Yes. So that is my claim to fame, y'all. And I met Phil on set and he had just been given some money from YouTube to sort of experiment with. It was sort of the precursor to the originals, mm-hmm. what would become the originals program. He was like wanting to launch this video game and movie review channel called Like Totally Awesome. Can't seem to escape companies with the word awesome. In them. <laughs> <laughs> it's true. Yes. And so I ran that for about eight months. And then with- from there, mm-hmm. started the cloud media. Tell us a little bit more about that. Yes. So Phil and I, we grew this channel. It got to 200,000 subscribers really fast in like two or three months. We had Toby Turner hosting it, which was an experience. And we, you know, it was doing really well, but I, I sort of was looking around and I was seeing, okay, Maker just started their one thing, but I think that people want an alternative. And I, I didn't really know what a manager did, to be totally honest. I was like, but I think that these this talent, like, like I've basically been acting like a manager, from what I understand, for Phil. I've been securing brand deals for him. I've been doing press, PR. I've been handling, like, his whole world. And I really liked that. But I feel like I could do it for more people. And so when we parted ways, you know, I had started dating Joe at the time. And he was the sixth biggest YouTuber. And, and Joe is Joe is my mystery, husband, my mystery, husband, now husband and also Mystery Guitar, Guitar Man. Yes, Mystery Guitar Man. <laughs> and he was like, look, this... I got this email. It's from like this somebody at hotmail.com. Like, I don't think it's legit, but it seems like a brand deal. And if you want to like run with it, let's see, let's just see how this works out. And if it's like a total disaster, you know, our relationship comes first. So I did it and it wound up being the first six figure deal anyone had ever done for wow. YouTubers. And it was with Sony. I was like, okay, this is a thing. This is like validation that there's something here and it, it's worth exploring. So I gave myself six months. And um, in those six months, wound up meeting the co-found my like, soon-to-be co-founder of what would become Big Frame, Steve Raymond. Yes. And so you guys met. How did you guys end up meeting? So this is a little known fact <laughs> by design, but I actually founded the Digitor, and I, did. <laughs> yeah. I have separated myself extremely from that whole world. I'm not familiar with that. What is the Digitour? It's basically a YouTuber's tour where they take, I mean, it has now had many iterations, but it's essentially taking some large YouTubers, putting them on stage, having them do whatever their 
talent is as a show and then taking that from city to city. Yeah. And so it's, it's literally like a tour as a musician would take, yeah. but it's YouTubers. Very instead. cool. What, so what that, inspired you to do that? It was just, I don't really associate with that company anymore, but it's, um, you know, I, again, I just kind of saw an opportunity and, and grabbed it and then brought in the people who now run it. Mm-hmm. But I, I really, look, I wasn't my expertise. I just saw it as an opportunity. And so, but through that, we were getting some press and somebody saw what we were doing and connected with me. And then was like, I think you should meet my friend, Steve Raymond. He's like looking, you know, for a new startup to help. And I, in that, at that time with big frame, well, with the cloud media, I wanted to raise money, but that was not my area of expertise. And I didn't want to like go get an MBA and then come back and do it because that would have been too late. And so we, I met Steve and we just really clicked and, you know, I felt like he understood my vision and would support it and wouldn't come in and kind of like bulldoze what I was doing. So I brought him in. It just happened really quickly. What was the division of focus or the division of responsibility between you and Steve? So Steve um, was, is the CEO, was the CEO and he was responsible for raising money and, and really truly running like the operations of the business. So hiring people and making sure like that, you know, payroll was working or hiring somebody to do that and, and reporting to the board and, and handling that whole, like the, like the infrastructure of the business. And then together, you know, we sort of collectively came up with and executed on the vision. It was a really great, you know, partnership that you guys had. I mean, I was able to see that when I worked at Awesomeness, I was able to see how you both worked really well together and supported one another. But you really never got the impression that either of you stepped on each other's toes and there was an enormous mm-hmm. amount of respect. And I always thought that was really cool to see, especially because you do have such different backgrounds, age yeah. difference, I mean, gender difference, mm-hmm. right? And yet you you two were able to not just work well together, but sell a company successfully. Yeah. And we still talk. <laughs> also <laughs> that. Friend, like, oh, I consider Steve somebody that I can always, I will always be able to call mm-hmm. if I need advice or I need he, you know, he moved on recently and I was a reference for him. And I think, you know, I've talked to a lot of founders and that's it's a really a rarity, to be honest. You know, look, it was a startup is if you've listened to the podcast startup, you know that there is this thing called trough of despair. And we experienced the trough of despair many times. And to really like be able to go through something like that and still come out on the other side and have respect for the other person, I think speak does speak volumes. Yeah, it was really neat. I mean, yeah. speaking of awesomeness and, and that whole mm-hmm. story, it was a huge sale for the space. I mean, I'm sure not just for you guys, but for the space in general. And it also really helped shift awesomeness and help take awesomeness to the next level. So can you talk a little bit about you know how that came about and what it was like being on the inside? That was really great experience. And I can say that honestly, because we were in the process of selling the company and we had a couple of people kind of interested and those, I will not say names, but those processes were unpleasant. I mean, anybody who's ever been through due diligence knows that it's like (laughs) getting a prostate exam (laughs) (laughs) to put it crassly. That might be putting it nicely. That's true. I was going to say, James might know a thing or two about that. Yeah, it is like, not pleasant and it's it drags out and there's games and it's phone calls and you're flying here and there and you're putting on the dog and pony show and in the midst of all of this I got pregnant 
That was a little twist, surprise <laughs> twist in the plot. Right. A little added stress yes. if you weren't stressed enough. So I, you know, I think that was, I felt like, okay, this is like, this is over, you know, and that's just me being totally honest. I, I felt like, okay, I'm going to tell Steve that I'm pregnant. And while legally nobody can say they're not buying us because of that, I felt, and this is sort of in my own head that, you know, nobody wants to purchase a company with a pregnant co-founder. And I was totally wrong. I mean, even the other companies that we were going through due diligence with were like, yeah, okay. And, you know, I made it this kind of big thing. So that that was actually really nice to hear. That's encouraging. Because I know that a lot of, I've I've read stories and talked to other women who did not have that same experience. And I will say, um, and especially with awesomeness, they were like, did not bat an eye. It was not an issue. It never came up except for like, congratulations. And we're so excited. That's when you know you found the right partner. Exactly. Mm-hmm. And look, that process took four days. Wow. They were in the longest four days of my life. Right. And I was extremely pregnant. Well, I was five months pregnant. But it was a testament to them, you know, really seeing what they wanted and going forward and not getting caught up in okay, like, I mean, some of these due diligences were so absurd. They would be like, well, we noticed in 2012 that you had a contract with somebody that auto-renewed, but they didn't sign it. I'm like, are you kidding me? Like, what? And I understand being careful, not being reckless, but, like, at the same time, let's move it along, you know? And I think to, you know, Brett and Brian's testament, they really are good at that, like, once they make their minds up, it's like, go, go, go. And they make it happen. Yeah. I remember being, before we got acquired, seeing all these press releases that Osmos was doing. I was getting so annoyed. I was like, there's no way they're doing all of this stuff. Like, this is just total BS. And it wasn't. When, once I got in on the inside, I'm like, oh, you guys are actually, like, doing all of this. It's really exciting and a really cool time to be part of this company. Yeah. So, I guess to learn a little bit more about that, how did... Having Big Frame become acquired by Awesomeness TV shift what you were focused on. What was the next step in the evolution of Big Frame? Well, completely shifted it. I, you know, I went on maternity leave as the integration was happening. So I left on mater- for maternity leave when we were in one office, and I came back and we were in another. And right. so culturally, you know, naturally things are shift because of that. And when I came back, I very quickly realized, okay, you know, big frame, my clients, they've all been functioning without me. And I'm kind of like, I'm back. (laughs) Remember me? And it didn't, wasn't that seamless. They hired new people while I was gone. And I, I recognized, okay, this is, you know, it's time for me to do something else. And, um, we had been sort of circling this idea of creating some content for moms and what that looks like. And I sort of you know, raised my hand and said, okay, I think now's the time to, to really do this. And similar to that position, they're like, yep, yeah, okay, do it. Go do it. And it aligned with your experience at the time, having just become yeah. a mother. Yes, exactly. And Brian has a little girl who's one month older than Jonah. So we were sort of experiencing the same things at the same time. And it just sort of made sense and happened very naturally. I remember there were being a lot of discussion about the potential, but I think it was when you were, you sort of said just now, you sort of raised your hand and you said, I think we should do this now. And you were there to do it. They really seemed to just go with it. I mean, it was really at that. They were like, great, that is the right person to do it. So let's 
let's run with it. And that has become Awestruck. Exactly. So tell us a little bit more about that. Yeah. So we are a small but mighty team (laughs) nested within the walls of Awesomeness. And, you know, we are creating content for millennial moms. And it really truly was born out of me and and Brian watching his wife, you know, search for and and not find content, Mm -hmm. video content specifically that we could relate to. We decided to make it ourselves and we work with a lot of celebrities. We work with a lot of digital native talent. We're creating content for YouTube and Go90 and Facebook is hugely important for us. Um, and we have, a, we have a really big vision for what we want this to be. And we think it's huge. There's an enormous amount. I mean, obviously, millennial moms, as, as they're aging up, it's this huge opportunity from obviously a brand perspective, content perspective. I know, obviously, some stuff I'm sure is secret, but do you have any sort of macro vision you could share of where, where you could see Awestruck really going? We definitely want to go global, mm-hmm. as Awesomeness has. We think motherhood is an experience that is... <laughs> Pretty global. Pretty I'm global. Go out on a limb and say and every it, country has it. Yeah. <laughs> and it's not really just parenting content. It's lifestyle. It's entertainment. It's design. It's, yeah, yeah, exactly. And we, you know, we sort of have this internal tagline which is entertainment with takeaway and that's really important because well comedy is hugely important for us and we have some stuff that is just pure comedy and pure entertainment we do want the mom the moms in our audience to get something out of it and learn something and help them make their day a little easier their lives a little better so and we want to do movies we're getting into scripted we just optioned our first book in the romance category which is Smart move, because I've I read recently that romance novels have exploded in popularity as of late. So yes. I think you're heading down the road yes. there, girl. So I can't announce what it is, but yeah. So Fifty Shades of Grey digital? Yeah. What? <laughs> Not quite right. that sexy, no. but there's a lot on the table right now. We have some exciting partnerships that are going to be announced soon, and mm-hmm. that's going to be a big year for us. So you've done this a few times now, the cloud media big frame and now awestruck. What is the hardest part of being an entrepreneur? Probably that trough of despair that we were talking about. I think it's your identity becomes so closely tied with this company that you're building. It feels like it's not a success. It does feel like the end of the world. And I think that there's a lot of entrepreneur porn out there, which is these big, flashy, sexy, billion-dollar unicorn companies, and they get all of these, oh, we just started with an idea, and we're sitting on a couch, and then suddenly we're billionaires. And I think that that's an extremely false story. Mm-hmm. And I think it's changing, but talking about the psychological toll that starting a, and running a company takes is, you know, it's kind of taboo. And, you know, you go to these network events and everyone's like, yeah, I'm crushing it. I'm doing so well. Like my charts are like this exponentially growth. And, you know, you're like, I know what's going, really going on. Yeah. But people aren't really willing to talk about it because it's scary. How do we encourage that conversation? Because I agree, you know, everyone, yeah. especially in this town, right? We're coming from the traditional Hollywood entertainment world. There is this, thought or this idea that you have to kind of puff up your chest and put up your best face, especially when you go to a networking event. But how do we be honest and share our struggles with other entrepreneurs? How do we understand and create a dialogue with people who are going through the same thing? I mean, I think it's conversations like these and, you know, sharing articles whenever an entrepreneur does open up about it. I always share that. And it is just about us. I feel like anytime I have this conversation with another entrepreneur, they're like, yes. And I'm like, 
now you need to go have that conversation with another entrepreneur because if we're just sitting here like suffering silently and I think that's it's not healthy and I think it does encourage the sort of glut of startups that we're seeing right now that's not good for the economy and it's not good for the fundraising environment and it's scary we creep into sort of bubble territory and there are real consequences to encouraging anyone and everyone to start a company you know I've had a couple experiences where some employees have been like I could I could do this better I could run this better and I'm like then you should do it if you mm-hmm. truly believe that but what I always ask is are you ready to take out the trash right like literally I'm not talking, I'm not talking metaphorically. Are you literally willing to figure out when you get an office, how does the trash go away at night? Because you know what? I have to think about that. And if you're not ready to think about that, if you want just like the big sexy paycheck and the the equity and the board meetings, like. That is not the way it goes. For a surprise, my friend. And I don't think people think about that. Big time. It's not nearly as glamorous as it seems. No, certainly not. But the good news is I, you are hearing more and more of these stories and you are hearing more and more how dangerous it is that the environment is all about building these unicorns and all, you know, all, of, all about the billion dollar, $10 billion company. The reality that while that was always the exception, not the rule, it's really becoming more and more the exception that companies can be valued at that. While maybe crushing some dreams of, yeah. of the, the unicorn out there, there's plenty of money to be made at $50 million or $100 million. Yeah. Even if you're not at the unicorn level, that's, I mean, that's money beyond anyone's, most people's wildest dreams. And that's wild success. And it doesn't mean you're shooting for less. It just maybe makes you more economically viable in the marketplace. But I do think these, these testimonials from entrepreneurs being like, it's actually not that easy. Yeah. You are hearing more and more of that, which is encouraging. Yeah, I did. I like, look, I think it is important to talk about it. And I think also I'm clearly obsessed with startup podcasts, but something that he said really stuck with me in season one, which was like, I don't know if I want to build a billion dollar company. Like I'm not comfortable in that space. And that sort of, when he said that, I was like, oh my, that totally opened up my whole realm of thinking. Cause as I'm thinking about like, you know, I do want to start another company, not now, but in the future. And it's like, oh, but I don't have that billion dollar idea. And mm-hmm. it's like, you know what? It's okay. There are, they're amazing. Like we, we talked to a lot of these entrepreneurs, which I kind of hate that term, but um, we talked to a lot of these entrepreneurs who have successful Etsy stores and you know what? They're like killing it with their diaper bags. Right. And I, you know what? They don't need that like cover up for this magazine and that's okay. Mm-hmm. not everyone kind of can thrive in that I mean it's stressful yeah. the going back to like my trash can thing it's like it's not just having a passion and having a hobby it's like you have in then you have employees and there I've had to lay off employees that is second to being laid off myself no actually it probably trumped being laid off myself because that was like I can you know whatever um, and it never gets easier no it's awful it's awful having mm-hmm. to lay someone off because it's not like firing them that's unpleasant but it's at least you're like okay you were not working out but laying someone off it's it's out of their control it's a horrible experience and you have there you have a livelihood in your hand families or whatever so i think those kinds of real things that you have to do when you're running a company are it's good to talk about them stepping a little bit out into the personal Obviously, you're married to Joe. You guys have a son. What are some combining with 
what are things you do outside of the realm of, you know, creating businesses or, you know, dominating the digital space as it were, you know, what do you do for fun? What books do you read or how do you relax? You know, you have this wonderful family you've also created in addition to, to the businesses that you've created. Yeah. I mean, my life has changed a lot since when I founded BitFrame and I really enjoy my time off. <laughs> I actually take vacation now. I just went camping in Big Sur for four days with my sister. We're going camping next weekend. I really love um, being outside, being outdoors. Jonah loves it too. We spend a lot of time at the beach. We go to a lot of like little music classes and a lot of times we just hang out here. And then I like binge watch Netflix. <laughs> So I do like to stay up on, it's important that I stay up on everything that's going on. And I also, I just love watching TV. Yeah, I was going to say, I was like, I think we can put in quotes. It is important for work, but that's such a great excuse too. Yeah. Being like, look, I have to watch the next six hours because look, it's my job. Right? <laughs> I need to be able to talk about this stuff. Exactly. What um, are your guilty pleasure shows? Um, so my guiltiest pleasure is Nashville. I love Nashville. Uh, Which, I'm first of all, Connie Britton is my, in Friday Night Lights and Nashville, she is my like idol as a mother. She's Aww. so amazing. I'm like, I wish that they could write my me as a mom. Write a script for me to be a mom. Is what I think. And I love the music, too. It's so yeah, good. Yeah, so good. I wish, I, so many of the songs, I'm like, why is this not on the radio? They're so good. So good. I'm so glad that you're a fan. I'm huge. Um, and then we watch John Oliver. And we watch Ballers. Nice. I, saw Ballers. I do. I like that show. So actually, it's really good. And we watch Billions as well, which yep. is very good. Which I've seen good. a couple episodes of it, and I really like it. I just it's not become one of my like right your go ten poles. Yeah, that's and really then good. I do read a lot. I read well now. I read romance novels, but um, <laughs> I read like uh, yeah. I try to keep up and read a ton of things. So. I do find time to enjoy myself, which I didn't before I had Jonah, but it's like, you know, it's important to try to stay present with him and not be on the phone too much. It's also important for just life in general, right? I mean, it's the age old, right? Who's going to hold your hand at you're on your deathbed, right? It's not going to be your job. It's not going to be your company. Yeah. It's going to be your family. Yeah. Yeah. Take time. Oh, I do. <laughs> it's a good thing. I guess as one going back into it as one final question, and maybe this is you don't want to share because it'll be your future, your future endeavor. But if you were starting again or or just now, what business would you, what do you think is the next frontier for online video or for the digital space in general? It's definitely virtual reality. I haven't sort of delved into that world as much as I wish I could, but it is on everybody's mind, on everybody's lips. It's something's happening there. There's a lot of money being poured into that space. I don't think it's like 3D, which is like kind of a gimmicky overlay to something. I think it's actually going to change things. And then on a sort of like more macro scale of media in general, what we're seeing happening with Verizon, for example, which I'm most familiar with, the telcos are turning into media companies and that's going to change the landscape dramatically. They have the pipes, they have the hardware, they have your credit card information and they have cash to spend. And so I think that they're really going to change the face of media in terms of consolidation. It's crazy consolidation we're seeing. I mean, they're just snapping up companies left and right. And they're not alone. It seems like a lot of brands now view themselves as media companies. Exactly. Pepsi is doing stuff in media. Red Bull is obviously an example. You know, it's not enough to, to just be a 
product anymore. You have to be a content creation company, which is great for us. <laughs> what do you think that is? Is that a reaction against advertising? And now we have this ad blocking phenomenon. Is it a move towards becoming more of a lifestyle brand and engaging fans in a more meaningful way using kind of communication methods like live streaming or on- online video rather than just pushing content to them, you know, like traditional advertising? Yeah. And I think, I think all of those and they understand that millennials and what comes after us, Gen Z, Gen Z, Gen Zers, I guess we've landed on that. I get, they don't respond to traditional 30 second ads. And so brands like a Pepsi who, especially a, you know, a sugar water company <laughs> in this era of healthy food and organic living and that they need to, they need to add into what they're doing as a business and they need to build brand loyalty in new ways. Mm-hmm. And they really have to figure that out. And then, I mean, Verizon's a little bit of a different scenario because they, it's like such a massive global, like thinking, um, it's not just about brand loyalty at all, but yeah, things like Pepsi, I even had, I did this like brand summit for a brand where they got 30 sort of influencers and different fields mm-hmm. of work together to brainstorm for them. And they were, it was not a sexy brand and they were like, we want to figure out how to be the Red Bull of, you know, breakfast foods, right. <laughs> right. you know, but they're, they're Let's reset our expectations right. a little bit, like, well, yeah, not, but very cool. And so you're seeing these companies trying to kind of figure it out. I heard on startup podcast, shockingly, <laughs> they had an ad for Ford and Ford has this like virtual reality studio oh, that's thing cool. that they're doing, you know, so it's just, it's all happening. All this convergence that Al Gore was talking about. He was right. He was right. Bring it back. Well done. <laughs> and we're back to current. I love it. And I think that's the way to close out. And so thank you so much for joining us and for sharing all that. And it's really interesting sort of hearing really different path that you took to, to get where you are and, and obviously also where you might end up. Who knows? Yes, who knows? Uh, that's great. Thanks, James. Oh, of course. For, for joining me on your podcast. Absolutely. It's <laughs> always a pleasure. Well, thank you, guys. No, and thanks, Sarah. This coming to my house since I can't uh, leave no. the baby alone. <laughs> that's, well, that's a good thing. So we are happy See, to guys, do it. I'm as good of a mom as Connie Britton is. That's right. <laughs> This has been another episode of All Things Video. We hope you'll share and subscribe for new episodes. And thank you once again. Bye.